Welcome to the Gonzo Movie Reviews. The Pixar Specials. This is the Toy Story Trilogy, Part 3. Daniel Floyd of Pixar and I are back for one final helping of Toy Story Deconstruction. This week it's 2010's Toy Story 3 Hello Dan. Hello. What nobody seems to remember is that this almost wasn't Pixar's Toy Story 3. I'm assuming you're familiar with this one. I am. I can actually yeah. detail it if you like. Um, well, I've got it here, but go for it. All right. Well, all right. Uh, anyway, okay, so the relationship between uh, Disney and Pixar is going pretty well as things are uh, early on. Mm-hmm. However, around 2004, things were starting to get strained just yeah. with uh, contractual issues and such. And uh, Michael Eisner. That too. Specifically. It was, start- it was starting to look, in fact, like Pixar might to even decide to take their business elsewhere, which is a scary thought. Well, according to their terms of their contract... Disney was able to create sequels, films, using Pixar characters and worlds. It was the first uh, seven Pixar films, all from Toy Story up to Cars, wasn't it? So they had the rights to do any any other films involving those characters. uh, Definitely, yeah, those. And um, and Pixar, of course, had the uh, right to refuse to actually do the production of those things themselves if they wanted to in the contract, but that's all they could really do. They couldn't actually stop them from being made. Uh, So Eisner began to put plans uh, into motion to produce a third Toy Story film, uh, through one of their new studios, Circle 7 Animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dubbed plan- Pix-Aunt by some particularly cruel types. <laughs> Those poor guys. But basically, this planned film would have seen the toys shipping a manufacturing... Bu- uh, manufacturer what, Shipping a malfunctioning Buzz Lightyear off to his manufacturer in Taiwan for repairs. Mm. However, the toys soon discover that said factory has issued a massive recall on Buzz Lightyear's worldwide on account of said malfunctions. And uh, so fearing Buzz's destruction at this factory, the toys strike out to rescue him. And although I think we're all glad that that's not what Toy Story 3 became, I think it still actually gives a fun sort of non-canon explanation for why all Buzz Lightyears are delusional. They're just all malfunction. <laughs> yeah, I kind of like that. The, they seem to be the only toys who actually don't realize that they are toys, and so this gives a fun, fun little sub-canon explanation. I would like to have read the completed script if they actually got to that phase, just so I could see what could have been. It sounds like yeah, a good good plan. Not as as awe-inspiring as what this ended up as, but uh, but fun. And kind of, again, focused on Buzz for a change. Just since Woody got the second film, this would have been uh, another Buzz one. Definitely. It would have fleshed out kind of the toys world some more in some more interesting ways, too. Getting to see, it'd be interesting to see what sort of, uh, how toys feel mm. about sort of like recalls and crazy mm. stuff like that. And also, anyway, as horrible as it would have made me feel, I'm, I'm intrigued to see what another animation house would do with Pixar's children. I'm I'm curious too, but uh, I still wouldn't want it to be the only reality we're living in. But I'm intrigued. Yeah, it's like the uh, the Kevin Smith version of Superman Returns that never turned out in the end. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, fortunately for everyone, a new deal was struck between Disney and Pixar in 2006, basically patching up the old relationship, putting Ed Catmull and John Lasseter in charge of Disney Animation, and uh, and and the Circle Seven production of Toy Story Three was scrapped, and the project was eventually transferred over to Pixar. Mm. Andrew Stanton wrote up a treatment. Uh, Pixar veteran editor and co-director Lee Unkrich was uh, chosen to direct. And I know he co-directed Toy Story Two. Was he any part of Toy Story One? Uh, he was the editor on Toy Story One. Yeah. So, so he's been, so he's been involved for the entire for the entire way there. So yeah, it's, he has he's very closely. Related. On a slight side note, actually, if you look at the actual directors of the Toy Story movies, they keep it very much in house to like the the guys at the very top. It's uh, John Lasseter did Toy Stories One and Two, Bugs Life and Cars. Pete Doctor did Monsters Inc. and Up. Andrew Stanton did Finding Nemo and Wally. Wally. Yeah. Uh, Brad Bird, they bought in to do The Incredibles and then Ratatouille. And am I missing anything? Uh, that's all for the currently uh, released. And, and yeah, so and Lee Unkrich uh, edited Toy Story and now has moved on to, full to fully-fledged director. So it's, it's kind of, um, they're, they're keeping it in trusted hands. Oh, definitely, yeah. I wonder if they'll continue with that or if they'll uh, eventually break from that pattern in the future. Hmm. I'd be, be interesting. 
there's definitely some, uh, I'm sure there's some fan favorite directors that we'd like to see, uh, try out a Pixar film, including Miyazaki. Oh, that'd be cool. Not actually inconceivable either. Actually, no, you're right, it's not. Mm. I mean, I think, I think Lasseter, have. I think Lasseter actually was a producer on Ponyo. Yeah, and, and he was instrumental in the, in, in the huge success of uh, Spirited Away in the States as well. No, definitely. Yeah, Lasseter and Miyazaki are very close friends in real life. So Hence Totoro in this film. Yes. This was Pixar's first step back into Andy's room in 11 years since 1999's Toy Story 2. The budget was considerably higher. Uh, any idea on the budgets for the, all three movies? Uh, wasn't the first one just like around 40 million or maybe it was 30? 30 million. I think it was another million. 20 million for uh, advertising, wasn't it? Mm, um, yeah. Toy Story 2? I don't know that one, actually. 90 million. 90 million, that's quite a jump up. Yeah, considering it jumped up from being straight to video as well. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and uh, Toy Story 3? Toy Story 3. I don't know that one either. 200 million. Whew. Yeah. But so much changed between 99 and, and uh, 2010. Absolutely. So and it was the first Toy Story in 3D, and the first Disney film released theatrically with Dolby 7.1 surround sound. It's currently the fifth highest grossing film of all time, making over a billion dollars. And the top grossing animated film. Uh, yeah, the top grossing animated film by far. The, uh, the next one down is number 15, which is... Is it Shrek 2? It is Shrek 2. All right. Uh, any clue on the first four highest grossing films of all time? Hmm. I don't know. I'm curious to know, though. In reverse order, you got number four, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. Mm. Mm. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Fantastic. Makes sense. Titanic makes perfect sense, even if, yep. you know, whatever your thoughts are on the film, it certainly plays to many, many markets, including the old and the young. And... Avatar. Of course. All right. Coincidentally, the sixth highest grossing movie of all time is Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, which is absolutely awful. How on earth did that happen? People like Alice in Wonderland. They like the story. They thought they were going to be delivered that. And then when they saw it and then came out of the cinema going, eh, it's all right. Mm. What they didn't say is, that isn't Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> and that, that word didn't get out there. They were, oh, it's good effects. But it's... Tim Burton took a whole bunch of names and scenarios from the Alice books, put them in a bag, shook them up, chucked them out, and they stuck it in 3D and stuck a price tag on it. And uh, it's an awful, awful film. It was nominated for an Academy Award this year for Best Picture, and after Beauty and the Beast and Up, but criminally not Wally, it was only the third animated film to achieve this nomination. It's up against nine others, because they're padding out the uh, Best Picture uh, category, so it's not just five, it's ten this year. Yeah. And, in my mind, clearly deserves to win. I've always found it's objectionable that Pixar continuously gets shunted into the Best Animated Movie category. Usually, unless there's fluffy widow dancing penguins on the opposing team, they could win with one hand tied behind their back. So it's absolutely right that they get to play in the big leagues up against the likes of Black Swan, 127 Hours, and Inception. Ceremony takes place next Sunday, and I hope they win for Pixar's sake, but personally I don't care about the outcome because I loathe the Academy for various reasons that I may go into in a future Gonzo show. Nice. See, it always bugs me, because I mean, it's also nominated for Best uh, Animated Feature. So, what, if it wins Best Feature, is it also going to win Best Animated Feature? And if it wins Best Picture, but not Best Animated Feature, is that like saying that How to Train Your Dragon is better than Toy Story 3? I mean, what's the other one? Uh, the Illusionist, I think. Yes, The Illusionist. Yeah. I kind of wish they'd given Tangled a nod in there, but oh well. <sighs> haven't seen it yet, but it, the, the fact that you're even saying that... Well, no, because they can only put three in the animated category. Yeah, because and I haven't seen the, it's only three per year that either. are even any good. Yeah, and I haven't seen The Illusionist either, so it may be that that's actually phenomenal, and that's why Tangled's not in there. But Maybe so. Um, but, you know, like I said, it, it's... 
I mean, what do you do about this? Do you make it that Pixar can't be put in the best animated film category because they're as good as, if not better than regular films? Or is that an insult to every, every other animated feature? Or do you just do away with the animated thing altogether and say, look, if it's a good film, it deserves a good Oscar? But this is just one of the many, many issues I have with the stupid Academy. It's the same confusing thing as with the foreign films category. So it's, yeah. yeah. We would be remiss not to talk about the other Academy Award-nominated short, Day and Night, before we start this. The Pixar short that played prior to the theatrical presentation. Now, here's the description. For, I mean, everyone must have seen this, but imagine that some of our audience haven't. Uh, day and Night follows two characters, Day and Night. Inside Day is a day scene with a sun in the center, and inside Night is a night scene with a moon in the center, only for some of the time. Whatever goes on inside of Day or Night expresses normal events that typically occur within a day or night, respectively. And these events often correspond with actions or emotions that the characters Day and Night express. For example, when Day is happy, he will have a rainbow inside him, and when Night is happy, he will have fireworks inside him. Day and Night meet, and at first are uneasy about each other. They become jealous of each other due to the events occurring in their insides and end up fighting at one point. Eventually, they see the positives in each other and learn to like each other. At the end of the film, the things they saw in each other, they see in themselves as day becomes night and night becomes day. This is the first Pixar short that's actually brought me to tears. It's a beautiful little short. I love it. And it's actually the first. uh, It's one of the things that has sort of sold me on 3D technology in general. It's one of the first times I've actually seen it used really nicely. You mentioned that in one of your lectures. Um, explain. Because I hate 3D. I hated watching Toy Story 3 in 3D. I was just I was longing to watch it in 2D the whole time. I loved the film. I hated the 3D effect. But that's just me and my 3D hating brain. Explain why you liked uh, Night and Day. Well, I'm not completely sold on 3D in general for the most of the time myself. I mean, Avatar, I was just I would just have soon preferred seeing it in 2D. I felt the same way about Up. How to Train Your Dragon, I felt actually pretty nice about the 3D there. I felt like it actually seemed kind of nice in there. And Toy Story 3 was about as close the best I've seen within a full feature of 3D tech that made it look really nice. But uh, it's still like I could still take it or leave it. I still love seeing it in 2D. But something about day and night, the fact that you have 2D hand-animated characters, mm. inside of which you see a 3D world, and that 3D world is actually, you see the full depth of that 3D world behind them. Mm. It gives such a very, very nice-looking effect in there. And it's one of the first times I've seen it really used to just, uh, to the point where I feel like, even seeing it in 2D, even though it's a fantastic, beautiful little short, I still feel like there's just that little missing element in there, just that that depth mm. added a nice little touch to the film. However, it's only a short, isn't it? So uh, imagine what an entire film doing that would be like to someone like me. I mean, to begin with, I'd be like, oh, this is fantastic. And then I'd eventually start clawing at my seat going, why isn't this in 2D? So, <laughs> and as uh, much as I like it, it's not like day and night is enough to sell me on a 3D TV. So. Indeed. Mark Kermode said the, uh, of, of 3D, and I've mentioned this one before, that Toy Story 3 and Avatar, he, he thought, got it absolutely the best in, in that you forget that it's 3D and your, your brain starts to tune it out because you're so engrossed in the story. Ergo, what's the point? What is the point if you're not noticing the 3D of, of 3D being good at all? Uh, did, you, did you see the um, 3D re-releases of Toy Story 1 and 2? I did not. Uh, no, you know, in the UK they were they had a limited run, and in the States they were given a double bill. But just like Grindhouse over here, we had them divided into two, so they could make twice as much from us. Mm. I, I mean, I read some nice-sounding things about the way they implemented the 3D. Like, uh, it's there's not a whole lot of like real depth of feeling when they're in the uh, when they're in Andy's room because mm. it's all nice and home and familiar. But like, as soon as they get out into the outside, scary out outside world, it's full-blown depth. It just everything seems really big and daunting oh, and scary and. So that's clever. That's that, that's using 3D for emphasis rather than just chucking it in there. Absolutely, but yeah. it's still like I don't know how it actually uh, looked in pra- in practice. See, I've watched every single Pixar film in the cinema from Toy Story onwards, and uh, I'm never going to miss a single one, even if, like, you know, for example, Cars 2. I'm not champing at the bit to see, but I won't miss it because I want to keep that uh, that batting average up. They haven't let me down. I'm not going to let them down. See it for the short at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I will. I wonder who's doing that. Not me, but still. But. <laughs> okay. In preparation, Pixar made two commercials for Lotso Huggin' Bear, recording them on grainy, distorted, and damaged VHS, and perfectly selling the intended year of 1983. The second one is the Japanese commercial, and both authentic and hilarious. Both are viewable on YouTube, but here's an audio taste of the second one. Hugin' Bear, 
みんなの一番のお友達ハグハグベアちゃんハグハグベアちゃん元気トイ・ストーリー1・ 2 received VHS and then DVD releases. Pixar, unlike Disney,、uh, just confirm this for me, do not discontinue their releases. I have not seen them discontinued so far. I don't, can't see any reason why they would start. So they are still readily available, at least in current formats. The first two were released on Blu ray early last year and the third at Christmas. As for video games, there was a. I wonder, do you know this one? There was a Toy Story game. Yep. And it was on the what system? Super Nintendo? Yes. Also Mega Drive, PC, and Game Boy versions. I liked that one when I was a kid. I don't know how well it holds up, but I liked it. Side scrolling platformer. It was, it made use of, uh, it was a completely, do you ever play Clockwork Knight? It was that kind of uh, almost rare style rendered uh, sprites. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Almost 3D looking. That was very appropriate for the film. And there was also、uh, a Dreamcast and N64 and PlayStation version of Toy Story 2 Buzz Lightyear to the Rescue,、uh, 3D platformer. And、uh, last year, Toy Story 3 was released as an apparently surprisingly intricate and good quality sandbox game. That was on PC, the Wii, the PS3, the PSP, the PS2, the Nintendo DS, and the Xbox 360. And has a res- graphing calculator. Yeah. <laughs> and has a res- it's on the Abacus. It has a respectable Metacritic of 76. There was also a Toy Story Racer on PS1 and Game Boy Color, and a collection of mini games titled Toy Story Mania on the Wii.、Uh, that's actually a, a kind of a, a re rendition of those Midway style games that play in one of the Disney theme parks.、Oh. Not Midway as in. Mortal Kombat, as in sort of like、uh, old fashioned penny arcade type places. Oh, okay.、Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, mini games on the Wii, who would have thunk it? And、uh, there was also Buzz Lightyear of Star Command in、uh, the Game Boy Advance. So yeah, it's not, they've not plastered us with,、uh, with games based on Toy Story, but、um, each, each film has had a significant release. Now, this podcast is going to prove quite difficult to me to talk about, as while I may seem, as a podcaster, tremendously crass and gittish, with cruel humour and double entendres, there are a few movies and songs that hit all the right buttons inside me and leave me welling up like a sobbing schoolgirl. If the editing in today's show sounds a little bit choppy, it's only because I collapsed in a heap of tears mid sentence and had to cut to a moment when I pulled myself together. One of the overriding themes is saying goodbye. The sense of watching your child grow up and go off and lead their own lives and the vacuum left behind where your former duties lay. Woody's steadfast loyalty to Andy leaves him in the position of a parent who is no longer needed. But this is not a sudden new development for the toys. Andy would have put them away years ago and this would entail thousands of days and nights huddled in the toy box just waiting for even a glimmer of interest for him. Hence Rex's, he held me! He actually held me! Now, this sense of life wasted in captivity and isolation and the internment camp sensibility of the movie's second act have led some to dub this Schindler's Toy Box, which I feel is a disservice to both stories. It's actually far closer to another film that's destined to be just as cherished as a story of hope behind bars, determination in the face of overwhelming despair, and ultimately hard earned freedom. That'd be Shawshank Redemption. Oh, yes. So let's talk about Sunnyside, something fun to begin with at least. The two most significant new toys. I mean, okay, well, first off, I just want to mention two of the toys. What's the name of that rock guy? Chunk. Chunk. I don't know if you, you're not, you're a little bit young to remember these, but he's kind of a combination of rock lords,、uh, and many faces from Masters of the Universe. It is, he seems very familiar in some sort of way, but I、hmm. don't know what from.、So. Are you familiar with rock lords? They were from back in the day when Transformers were massively popular. And you, you ever seen that scene in Big where the,、uh, the building turns into a bug? Ironically, that's Tom Hanks right there. The, the, <laughs> Tom Hanks is playing with a skyscraper that the, this toy company, Millen Toys, is trying to market to children. And he's telling this room full of the guys who、uh, were forcing Disney sequels on straight to video throughout the 90s, businessmen, what is fun about playing with a building? Well, that same team in reality came up with、uh, Rock Lords. And ever, ever 
variety of other different things that robots could turn into. A robot that turns into a rock. Well. Yeah. Okay, and the other one uh, is uh, Twitch, who is a tiny, tiny character in this film, but he's Buzz Off from Masters of the Universe with a little bit of whiplash in there as well. I mean, his entire, his body is shaped and detailed like a slightly more articulated uh, He-Man figure. So that was, those two caught my eye. But the main two toys in this particular group are uh, Lotso and Ken. Let's talk about Ken first, because he is great fun. Yes. Uh, I haven't even written anything about him. Just the word metrosexual. The, the whole film, the whole joke is that Ken's deeply closeted, yet he seems only ever attracted and really attracted to Barbie. So that, that makes him metrosexual, it would appear. But heavily metrosexual, like clothes obsessive, to the point where when the bookworm sees apparently Ken wearing high-heeled shoes, he just goes, eh, that's Ken for you. <laughs> It just it makes utter sense that that's exactly what Ken would be like when given life. Yeah, but without Barbie. It's a yeah yeah it's a male character in a in a girl's line of toys with tons of clothes mm. and different outfits. To but no into. purpose. And, and no real purpose. Yeah, and, it's not, and not really even self. It's that's the thing. He's not even like metrosexual in a self-aware kind of way. He's yeah. just like what this is. I don't know why you guys keep making fun of yeah. me. Yeah, it's just, it's in his nature, same as it appears to be hardwired into him to be devastatingly attracted to Barbie. Um, I would have guessed Michael Keaton would be oh, such a he's such fun. <laughs> the way he's animated as well, his little, his little walk. He's got this little, like, dainty little walk when he's sort of running along in his, his little shorts. Uh, he's actually based on a, a real-life Ken from the uh, 80s, I believe, called Animal Lovin' Ken. He's got those shorts, and uh, yep. Barbie's based on uh, Great Shape Barbie, hence. It, it would appear that particular Barbie, uh, Molly may have been given her as a present, but she never got particularly interested in uh, in buying her dresses and stuff, because she only wears that one keep-fit outfit the whole way through. She doesn't get to wear a different outfit till the very, very end. Oh, She's true. kind of a Barbie without a purpose as well. Uh, Jodie Benson plays her fantastically, because you start off just thinking she's a valley girl, and at the end she gets to say, authority should derive from the consent of the governed, not to the threat of force. <laughs> it's just this fantastic sort of moment of, whoa, where'd that come from? <laughs> Bobby's been studying sociology. Maybe uh, Molly has a uh, like a little couple school books in her room. I mean, it's not like Barbie's had anything else to do for a while. Maybe Barbie was hanging out with Ham. He seems to know his stuff, and he likes her Corvette. That makes sense. That's probably the, the most funny throwaway line is, I get the Corvette. Yeah, get... that's my favorite too. Ken's moment, uh, his, his little uh, freak out um, <laughs> dress, dressing up session, is, it, to me, is the funniest moment of the entire film. And comes at a point when you're you know, on the edge of your seat, hoping that they can break out of prison. Sure. Some of the, the I think the two funniest moments in the entire film are just kind of like slipped in in the middle of a prison breakout. It's, a, it's Ken trying on stuff. Mm. And Spanish uh, Buzz's dance. I was going to say Mr. Tortilla Head as well. That's fantastic. Oh, all right, three. The three funniest moments yeah. in the film. And yeah, of course, you got Spanish Buzz, which uh, I, again, I didn't have much specifically to say about that. But the the guy who um, who played Spanish Buzz did the voice for the uh, Spanish Buzz Lightyear action figure. Yep, yep. Oh, and and we they didn't the know when they cast him. And we have the answer to that question we weren't sure about before. Now, all right. In the Spanish language version of the film, Spanish Buzz still speaks Spanish, but he kind of puts on a voice like kind of this uh, ladies' man hero sort of Latin lover sort of. Uh, Sort of voice, so which I guess is enough to distinguish the difference. Right. He's kind of bullfighter, a little bit of flamenco dancer, slightly desperado, a little bit Zorro. Yep, yep, definitely. And I also would just want to note, just animator note, the uh, guy who kind of responsible for the entire Spanish buzz uh, performance mm. is named Carlos Baena, who Baena, actually, yeah, yeah who's uh, one of Pixar's veterans and best animators, and uh, actually founded the school I went to. So. Uh, Whoa. Oh, I think you mentioned that last week as well. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, fantastic guy. And then there's Lotso. 
Lotso's story is tragic and so well played. Here, but for the grace of the toy god, goes Woody. Unlike Pete, who was never loved, or Jesse, who was loved and abandoned, Lotso is faced with an existential dilemma. The unavoidable fact that Daisy doesn't love him, the true him, his teddy bear soul. She loves the fuzzy, strawberry-smelling teddy bear shell that houses him. His body is replaceable. His soul is irrelevant. It's impossible to consider this bear evil, for me at least. He's twisted and damaged and battered and isolated, emotionally strained beyond the point of breaking. His retreat into lies to Paul Big Baby and Chuckles the Clown is the selfish weakness that we all wish we were stronger than within ourselves. It has indeed been said that he could be Woody. The cowboy's love for Andy is never-ending, but... If Woody returned at the end of Toy Story 2 and found Andy was back from camp and had been bought a new cowboy doll, probably not a rare vintage Sheriff Woody, his mum isn't a millionaire, and especially after he'd made his ultimate decision, what would or could he do? Most likely infiltrate the house, be found and wind up in another buzz situation like the first film. The fact that Lotso gives up on Daisy speaks to a character far more brittle and embittered than Woody could ever be. Ultimately, I take great pity on Lotso. His decision to let the toys burn and his reign of despotic cruelty, while despicable, are the actions of a frightened wretch of a toy. I can only hope that his time on the front of the truck being carried around like a mascot by a soft-hearted garbage collector would soften his flinty pink heart. Yeah, hopefully so. I did always like the uh, the many parallels between Lotso and Woody, and the mm. just the fact that they are both kind of like the lead, just uh, take the leader role wherever they are. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it's seeing Lotso in the Sunnyside daycare is poss- is definitely like a it's a f- potential future of a very embittered Woody that I could see. I don't know what it would take exactly to put him to that point, but I could sort of see it happening. Maybe I think it would take... Uh, if if Andy just chucked him and the rest of the toys away in, in a garbage bag and they'd gotten out, that might be Woody. Yeah. If, it, if, it actually, if Andy had actually properly shown with beyond a shadow of a doubt that he really didn't care and all of Woody's love was for nothing, that would break Woody, I think. I just had a weird thought, and I don't know if it really makes sense, but I wonder if that's actually something that could have, like, in a weird alternate universe, maybe Jesse, actually. Because, like, in the, uh, after the whole, they threw us, a- Andy threw us away sort of moment, Je- mm. Jesse seems to be one of the most kind of, like, just because she's experienced it before. She's yeah, the most she's like, you know, she actually says it's like uh, Emily all over again. Exactly. But she like, just I, she she doesn't say it in a kind of this is devastating to me. It's like I've been waiting for this. I knew this was going to happen. In a kind of like this time, she's geared up for it, and she's she's mm. ready to she's ready for action at this point. Yeah. She does want to find a new home. She ha- she has she she loved she loved her time with the toys, and so she she doesn't want to just give up on that. She's n- I don't think she could become like Lotso. I think it would take more than that because of course those toys believe that Andy was throwing them away. That's true. And even even though Woody's telling them the truth, they you know that they, they seem confused and annoyed by the whole situation. They're very much more accepting of their fate than Woody, but uh, that, that comes into play later. The sequence known simply to the animators as rough play takes place in the middle of the film. Parents who've got kids of like five or six all seem to corroborate on this. There is a turning point 
uh, in a toddler when they go from being the the savage little monkeys in uh, in the caterpillar room to actually being a bit more conscientious and caring like the kids in the butterfly room it's it's, it's only a period of about 6 months that entails that change, but it's this transformation, and it's the kids suddenly become a lot more aware of everything around them. Not all kids; some kids maintain that sense of savage selfishness the whole way through their lives. The whole idea of caterpillars then, you know, becoming chrysalises and then sprouting into butterflies—it's a pretty straightforward metaphor. Absolutely, yeah. Gosh, that sequence is terrifying. But at the same time, it's it's fantastic food for me to show Lyra and say, look. Messy kids. <laughs> and she goes, oh, naughty. And I go, no, not naughty, just messy and crazy and not very calm or conscientious. And look at all that. And uh, then whenever she sees the, uh, the kids in the butterfly, she goes, oh, nice kids. And I'm like, yeah, you want to be like that. These films are so instrumental to Lyra's development. She adores them beyond measure, and she, you know, the one thing she requests all the time. And so she's she started actually imitating Bonnie now, which awesome. is as charming as you could possibly imagine. Absolutely, because Bonnie is probably the cutest, most appealing little animated girl ever created. The way we're introduced to Bonnie is subtly handled. She appears to be just yet another obstacle to Woody's return to Andy, albeit an adorable one. You don't suspect until the very end that she will be their ultimate goal. There's a key difference to the way Bonnie plays with the way Andy does. Andy directs his toys around the sandbox of his bedroom, incorporating any new additions with imagination and creativity. Bonnie does almost exactly the same thing, but actively takes part as a player in her own productions. This is the greenest movie Pixar have ever done. Greener than a bug's life. It's as green as Finding Nemo is blue. It's a colour that's turned up in snippets in the past two movies, notably on Buzz, RC and the Three-Eyed Aliens. But in this case, it's almost overwhelming, representing a new world for the toys, full of promise and excitement. When they're about to escape through the garbage chute, that green turns to a sickly yellow, signifying the rot at the core of Sunnyside, and as a premonition of the decaying garbage dump. Red also plays a part, signifying danger as a stripe on the box that Mrs. Davis donates, the eyes of the evil monkey and the lights in the garbage truck. Lotso is also red, but it's a faded pink and deceptive shade. Blue equates to safety at first, Andy's room. His walls are blue, his t-shirt is blue, and his car is blue, just like the family car in the first film. But the greenest and most organic place is Bonnie's house. She's constantly clad in verdant green, a signifier of her spring-like youth and the new beginning. Cast your minds back to the very first scene in Toy Story. What colour was Andy's t-shirt? Was it green then? It was green. Nice, I never noticed that. Oh, yeah. Now, they don't even mention that. In the in the commentary, they do mention that blue is, uh, is, is for safety, but it just seems like this film is all about a new spring. You don't realise until the end, but that's that's what it's about for these toys. It did build, it did build up a lot based on a primary colour. Just the colours like red, blue, mm. yellow, and green, I think, are kind of a very uh, thematic elements in this yeah. film. It's uh, it's like the, the Sixth Sense uh, uses uh, similar, you know, similar use of green and red. Like I'd even noticed uh, yesterday in the... Uh, Toward in the uh, final dump scene, as things are getting redder and redder, like Lotso looks up at the uh, shutoff switch, which is a blue flashing light, kind of the light of <laughs> the hope of safety up there. Yeah, the Pizza Planet truck is in this film. Yep. Which bit? It is in uh, the flashback tale of Lotso. Indeed, it's the uh, truck that Lotso, Big Baby, and Chuckles hitch a ride on. Wally B makes a double appearance in this film. The second one's so small, I didn't, I, I couldn't even see it, but I'm told it's there. I, I did see it after I was told to look for it. Yeah. Uh, it's, she's, it Wally B is on uh, Bonnie's backpack, and apparently he's on a temporary tattoo on her as well, on her hand. Yeah. It's very it's very faded, but yeah. it is there. That's so smart. I'm assuming Wally well, is, is, is named for Wally B. You know, that actually would make a lot of sense. Apparently there are a whole ton of little cameos in this film that I that even I had not, still haven't even, even in looking for them, I can't find them, but I'm assured they're there. There's a little one-eyed guy with uh, horns who looks kind of like an elongated Mike from uh, Monsters, Inc. in the uh, many, many toys at the daycare center. Yep. And uh, on Andy's wall, apparently there is a postcard letter from Carl and Ellie f- from Up. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's also uh, a picture of a car, which looks like it might be an Aston Martin DB5, which I'm reliably informed by the t- Pixar staff, slightly coy references, uh, is going to be in Cars 2, possibly the Michael Caine character. That seems right to me, too. Yeah. They do that flash-forward thing. I really like the uh, aspect, and they, and they mentioned this a lot in the commentaries as well, that um, the different... Uh, 
kind of working environments in a way that uh, Andy's room and Bonnie's room have. The Andy's room, you have all the toys kind of organized in this sort of office hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, they're uh, like office buddies. Yeah, office buddies. Andy or Woody is kind of the uh, boss figure, and uh, whereas Uncle in Bonnie's Scott. room, yeah, whereas in Bonnie's room, it, you've got something much more akin to a theater troupe. Yeah, where you've got your uh, You've got your kind of like snooty old British actors. You've got your, Mr. Pricklepants. Yes, he's oh, he's great. Timothy Dalton. And your uh, improv little improv actors. It's a it's a nice little uh, difference between the two, and something that uh, my wife had actually suggested as a possibility for maybe where Andy or for where Woody sat during those many lost years between his his uh, golden his day and the time when Andy has him. Maybe he was sitting at somebody's like office shelf or at their desk or something. Maybe mm. that's how he knows how to organize that sort of... Well, it's a reach, but it's it's kind of a fun... Uh, if if he was, then he was well covered, because toys like that, that become dusty like that, uh, would become sun-damaged, and uh, the actual filth would begin to ingrain itself on him. Over 30 years, uh, it, it seems far more likely he was somewhere away from light, away from dust, um, because he's pristine. Uh, in this, the animation in this is such a step up from two. So much has happened with Pixar between the two of them. It's lush and rich, and it's the first Toy Story that they've done where they, they're at the top of their game, and there's the, the adversity of the first two is a distant memory. It's, you'd imagine that adversity would, uh, would have made, uh, you know, that the lack of adversity would make them relax, but they're so on the ball for this film. And they it's do definitely take sure. some, they take on some very challenging things too, like that tortilla head thing cannot have been easy mm. at all. <laughs> And uh, oh, what else? Um, oh, I've taken a photo of that, so check out the thread. I've made my own tortilla head. Really? That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, Spanish Buzz, also a challenging thing to nail and get right, which they so absolutely did. Yeah. And as well as everything at the dump scene, this the level of simulation going on there is it's like terrifying to me. There are still aspects of the production process that, like, even as a guy who works at Pixar, I am still completely baffled by the guys who work in effects are still wizards by my account they work some incredible wizardry during that final sequence we didn't really talk about it earlier but i really like that we get a in the very beginning of the film we get a recreation of andy's playtime kind of ah, yes. the first film in a big huge epic scale much like buzz's huge epic scale of a it's an intro to the second toy story yeah. like that one gave us a look at what's Toy Story 1 Buzz was seeing the real world as yeah. the entire time way through and this one gives us a big epic rendition of probably what the toys saw throughout the yeah. uh, this the is why play playing with, with Andy while it may look a bit cheesy to us this is why it's so important to them because they get to live these incredible you know cinematic style events that go, that go, go through because they've got someone dreaming all this up for them and giving them, giving them purpose it's astonishing and the pig ship is just in the <laughs> course. Um, they actually, I think they got, technically they got the original Molly in there because um, the, uh, I can't remember who it was, whose uh, daughter played the original gurgling Molly. He'd recorded her bits of her before, back in 99, and he uh, just used bits of the old recording they hadn't used before for, you know, th- those Molly scenes where she burst in and started knocking over all those uh, Lincoln logs. Mm, nice. Yeah. Who did they get for uh, young Andy again? Because... That I don't know, because obviously old Andy is Andy, and that was yeah. fantastic. Yeah, John Morris, they actually they, they, they brought him all the way back. They hadn't talked to him for, for years. They had no idea what he was going to be even like, or even if he'd sound right. He was 24, and he, he hadn't been working with them as Andy for 10 years. And uh, then they just heard his voice on his answer phone and said, yep, no, he's perfect. And he came back, and he does such a fantastic job. Absolutely. And, uh, of course, they get the original Sid back. <laughs> they even said in the commentary, original Sid makes it sound somewhat biblical, but uh, but yeah, he's the, uh, we mentioned back in the first episode, he is the garbage collector who picks up, almost crushes the toys at the beginning. Yeah, and at it, least he seems happy that way. Yeah, and we've said he seems happy. I would like to think he's doing something else. And also, it's it's not even like they could just take the original models, tweak them, and add extra textures. They had to rebuild them from the ground up. They weren't able to edit any of the original assets they had. This was this was made from scratch. Yeah, d- definitely. And it's probably for the probably for the best too that they needed to because the way that 
I mean, the way that they had to build models to be like for them to actually interact with them and work with them and mm. uh, animate them, they basically had to work within some heavy limitations at the time, and so they had to find kind of clever ways to make it possible to work with these things. Mm. Now we've got much better tech, we've got much better methods. It basically allows them to start from the ground up, building these things to be building these new character models mm. to be uh, animated and managed and lit through our current really nice methods. So. Uh, it's probably. I know it involved more work, but I think it. Uh, I think it really paid off. I'm sure it really paid off. Also, now that I think about it, this is the first Pixar film where they've actually got astonishing physics and animation and detail on humans. Because there've been humans in plenty of Pixar films before, Incredibles, so there's humans in Finding Nemo, plenty of humans, you know, corpulent ones in Wall-E. Um, but Ratatouille has a really nice Ratatouille, and of course Up, but almost all of them are very stylized. The humans in this, maybe the toddlers a bit more, but the humans in this are a lot less stylized than Pixar. Uh, are used to uh, producing. In fact, you guys are coming closer to the uncanny valley than than you have before. It's a it's a it's a line that's dangerous to walk on, but it's pulled off so perfectly in this. It works really well. It's, I'm it's impressed just, they managed, yeah. I'm impressed they managed to make it. It still it feels like the characters still from Toy Story one and Toy Story two. Yeah, yeah, they've come a long way, and uh, it really shows. But it's not jarring. It doesn't feel like a strange, different Andy or a different Andy's family. And they did very well with Molly, who I find odious. Because I really dislike that phase in uh, in teenage girls, that sense of, well, I'm 11 now, I'm going to act like I'm 21, which effectively means I'm going to act like I'm a really spoiled 11-year-old. Um, and, yeah, I, I, that, that kind of little girl puts my back up, and I'm dreading the day less than nine years from now when Lyra hits that. I hope it won't happen to her. <laughs> but yeah, the original uh, opening for the film was going to be a Leone-style showdown between Woody and Buzz, which then turned into a horrible, cheesy disco dance because it was Molly playing with them. And it was going to be, these guys don't have a future with her. But uh, they decided to do away with that in favour of the um, you know, the, the, the golden age, as it mm, were. Yeah. That's another in- intro that would have been very interesting, but I'm still glad that they uh, yeah. went with what they did. Oh, and one more thing. Uh, the toys hiding under the counter during rough play are straight out of... Oh, yeah, it's from Tin Toy. Yeah, even the little shaky clock. It's exactly... I mean, that was paid homage to in the original Toy Story, but they literally got them for this one. Yeah, that was a great idea. Oh, also, another animation note. There are a lot of toys in this movie. Yeah. And that, and uh, especially once you get into Sunnyside... Well, there's 1.4 million uh, Death by Monkeys. Okay, yeah, well, those don't, that's a simulation, though. You don't have to animate those by hand. Sure. That's, that's something that the... Well, the hero monkeys were animated by hand, but the ones around. Yeah, Yeah. like that's something that the uh, aforementioned wizards had to had to deal with. Yeah. um, But you can't really simulate just toys acting though once you get into Sunnyside, and that is a lot of toys. Yeah. So uh, didn't they do that whole sequence in Sunnyside, the introduction, in two weeks? They said, right, this may seem daunting, but we're going to get it done. Yeah, they pretty much like shut down all the other work that they were doing. It's like, all right, guys, we are all at once. Everybody, we're going to knock this out and get it over with, and, and do it. And uh, and they made kind of a big production out of it and made and made it all fun. So uh, so they could all the motivation stories that I, I keep re- hearing about on the DVDs sounds so fantastic. It's like the head shaving, the cereal bar. <laughs> I want to I want to see that cereal bar. I haven't gotten to actually go to the main. Uh, it's, campus as, as it were the yeah. main building of uh, pixar yet and i would so love to get to explore that place and well okay pixar i am offering my services as a serial bartender if you need <laughs> such a man i will polish your bowls and uh, i will comfort you when you're down and go uh, and then listen to your stories <laughs> The end of all things. Here we go. 
At the dump, so many things are at play, it's hard to get them all down. The vision of a shattered landscape as Woody climbs onto a windswept hill of garbage brings to mind the world of Wall-E, that of Earth 700 years in the future when we've made a royal hash of the planet and escaped into space. That feeling stays with you as the toys are propelled along by the infernal machine, forced to ride a lethal roller coaster of humanity's wastefulness. None of this would be as powerful without that vital choice in Toy Story 2. Woody was placed at a fork in the road, and this is the one that he chose with all its uncertainty, foregoing safety for love. So folks who tell you Toy Story 2 is irrelevant now may as well take that same tactic with the Two Towers and the Bourne Supremacy. Bigger picture, this trilogy is the three-act structure of Woody's story. Setup, action, consequences. When the flashing light and the off switch, blue for safety, strobes, they're channeling James Cameron's Aliens and Titanic, compounded by the nerve-jangling pace and pile-driver musical score, and Lotso leaves them to their fate and seals his own. The incinerator, as dangerously red as it gets, and this whole disposal core is set up to be inescapable. The scene is set for the toys to make their usual miraculous escape through quick thinking and bravery, but there is no way out. This is a fate that's been chasing Woody for his entire existence, his worst fear, and the symbolic fiery end to our world that we fear on a primal level. Shot like the trapped passengers in an aeroplane that's going down, the toys have no recourse but to accept their fate, and that's when we, the audience, get very scared. Because the looks on their faces, those heartbreaking, wordless gazes, are what they're choosing to do with their last moments. I'll confess I thought they were going to kill Buzz when the TV fell on him, but at this point I was buried in my seat, hands to my mouth, and terrified that Pixar might actually have the inclination and the guts to destroy our beloved heroes before our trusting eyes. So when the claw comes down, the deus ex machina, you can be forgiven for feeling both relieved and narratively cheated. The three-eyed aliens are the cavalry riding in to save the day and snatch the toys from the jaws of death. But this is the ultimate payoff for Woody's no-toy-left-behind philosophy that has permeated every toy he's known. Even the simpleton aliens won't give up on him because he never gave up on them. This scene appears to be heavily inspired by the epic finale of Lord of the Rings Return of the King. There's the hellish Mount Doom at the centre, the inescapable fate, the treacherous companion, and the eagle's claw snatching up the heroes and bearing them off to safety. It's one of the greatest animated sequences in cinema history but it's not even the best in this film. This is a phenomenal, heartbreaking sequence. One one thing that actually uh, kind of get like gets me and, inter- and uh, interests me a bit is that it in- it interests me is that Buzz is actually the first one to kind of resign to their fate while they're in there, because Buzz is always the one who like he is the movie hero. He's the guy who never gives up. He's the guy who never like, retreats, Buzz, never surrender. Yeah, he's he's going to go flipping, jumping and doing some crazy acrobatic thing and he's going to make it work and he's going to get them out of there, but this is the first time that Buzz has basically said that Buzz is the first one to accept it and and accept defeat here is a kind of like a extra touching thing to me. It's this is one of those parts in the movie that it, like there are a few pinpoint spots in this film that make me maybe not full on cry but well up guaranteed and there are and I can almost kind of time them down to the second because just the specific shots and at least two of them are in this sequence here and uh, there are more later we get the first ending which again like Return of the King would have been perfectly acceptable and bittersweet Woody bids the toys farewell in the hopes of seeing them in a few years and maybe at some point being passed on together to Andy's children that would have been fine But in order to get an even better ending, the sweetness and the bitterness have to be ramped up to 11. Woody decides after watching Mrs. Davis, as she lets her son go, that it's time he did the same. 
Andy's decision motivated by Woody to give away childish things to a person in whose hands they can be as cherished as they had been in Andy's childhood is a moment that strikes like a lance to the heart of anybody who remembers that pivotal time in their life. In an instant, you know that, yes, Bonnie is perfect. Yes, this is where the toys should be. But Pixar's cunning fake-out shooting from within Andy's college box leaves you unsure as to whether Woody has to say goodbye to Andy or the toys. The eventual revelation and Andy's hesitance to let go of Woody is once again some of the finest animation put to film. There's so much going on here, and astonishingly, it's mainly between characters we've not really spent time with. That's a good point. And, and the yeah, you're right, the animation, acting, and performances in this sequence are phenomenal. They steer so clear of melodrama. They could really have over the pudding on this one. They could have just... You know how they play... Um, Near my god to the end, Titanic. Oh, yeah. And it's, yep. it's like, this is the most tragic scene ever. Now let's play some really tragic music over it as well. I love that scene, but Jesus Christ, James Cameron needs to learn how to just hold back sometimes. It does lay it on a little bit thick. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they don't do that in this one. The music goes quiet. And then when they get that final play, they say that that reminds, uh, I think, Leon Quick said it reminded him of the end of Parenthood, also scored by Randy Newman, where stuff's going on and people are talking and, you know, th- there's events happening. And this In Parenthood, it's uh, a, a new baby's born and the entire family are interacting and joyfully, but you don't hear what's being said, you just hear the music and you see what's going on, and it's incredibly powerful. And... And yeah, you don't get to see... It's There's no point where the toys, you know, suddenly come to life, you know, off camera and go, well, hey, thumbs up. It's all just what the toys mean to them. And you know how much the toys are absolutely loving it. They even oh, they even make Slinky smile a little bit more than he normally would when Andy puts him down in front of Bonnie. <laughs> it's... Uh, they get it just right, and they get the looks just right, and they... <sighs> This is the bit that gets people, I think. Yeah, well, this gets me guaranteed. And, and again, I can time it down to a few specific moments and shots where it always will make me well up. Again, the bit where Andy's holding Woody and uh, Bonnie makes to uh, to hold him and, and he sort of holds it back is kind of like that bit where Sam brought the ring for Frodo and then there's, there's that little bit between them where it maybe Sam doesn't want to let it go it's I mean obviously this is far more emotionally driven but it's this this sense that he has physically got to let go of Woody and he hadn't even geared up for this one I don't know why but this uh, maybe I guess I'm beginning to pinpoint why there are certain moments in the sequence where Andy really reminds me of John Lasseter which is weird because I haven't really seen much of John Lasseter outside of just straight what we've seen in the interviews and such and I think it's actually it reminds me of that story he tells in Toy Story 2 when he has uh, around Toy Story 2 when he gets his, lets his kids into his office mm. and his kids start wanting to play around with things and he starts wanting to like hold it oh no don't play with that oh don't, oh that's valuable a sort of thing and uh, like when he takes uh, when he pulls Woody out of the box, you immediately see like the concern and care and the protectiveness in his face, and it's like put his put his hat back on him and kind of kind of create him a little bit. And Bonnie reaches for him, and and uh, Andy kind of like winces and like kind of pulls back and like kind of protective of Woody there. And, he, and I feel like I'm seeing a little bit of like a John Lasseter performance somehow in there, and that's probably my imagination and the fact that both of their eyes are blue. But <laughs> it's such a nice. It's again, it's the fantastic animation work that those guys did on these really human characters. And again, Bonnie doesn't pout when he he, see, he holds him. She just looks very sad. And you think, oh, and you realize how much she's already grown attached to Woody. Mm-hmm. And this little this little her finding him is going to become a very special part of her life. This is the final payoff for all of Woody's loyalty, his unflagging attachment to Andy, while it motivated the other toys and eventually infuriated them in this film, is justified. This kid, just like his brave cowboy doll, will not let the toys he loves down. Ever. Yeah, I think I think the and the precise moment in which that always makes me well up, probably even more than in the incinerator scenes, that moment where Bonnie makes Woody wave back to Andy and does that little gasp and that little kind of slight just trace of emotion that you see on Andy's face it's one of the most powerful pieces of animation that I've ever seen
camera pans up and you get the uh, the fluffy white clouds, which are the same clouds, only they weren't they aren't wallpaper now, that started the whole trilogy off at the beginning. This is Mark Kermode referred to this as the only perfect trilogy. Other people might not agree, but uh, I'm, I'm not going to argue with him. Okay, so let's just talk about the very, very end where you get the epilogue because they have to leave you, you know, laughing through the tears, uh, you know, so people don't just leave the uh, uh, the place. Oh, also, it ends on a yellow door, almost exactly the same as uh, Return of the King, and sort of panning up. I know it's sort of a greeny yellow, but uh, but yeah, it's just like Sam's front door again. I, I, do love that Lord of the Rings trilogy. We will do that at some point. The, the one reason I'm not going to do the Lord of the Rings trilogy for a while is because it's so big and so huge that once I've done it, there's almost nothing else left to do. You know? Or nothing yeah, else yeah. that can match up to it for me. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Totally. I'm glad they did give us this little epilogue, though, because it's a. Uh, you need yeah. time to dry the tears before you have to take the 3D glasses off. <laughs> oh, man. There was a point, actually, when I took the 3D glasses off in the middle of the film and I felt so ill, and I noticed. Oh hey, it's all gone to 2D. It's fine. This bit's not in 3D. And then it suddenly went to 3D again, and I went, "Oh god, blurry, horrible. I feel sick." I think I'm pretty much done with the uh, the format. But um, but no, the film itself was was phenomenal. And uh, my I saw it in in one day at the same day as Inception. That was a pretty good day. That's a that was my birthday. That's <laughs> wow. What a way to spend your birthday, honestly. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've just picked out another um, uh, Lord of the Rings parallel with the um, scene with hiding from Big Baby and uh, during the escape. Kind of a Big Baby on the swing set. They mm-hmm. try to sneak by, they hide under the... Yeah. It's like a ring wraith, or...? Yeah, yeah, like the ring wraith scene in the, the Fellowship. Big Baby gets such a bad rap. He's, um, he's, he's animated so unnervingly. That little punch-drunk right eye of hey, yeah. left eye. It's, it's to our, our right. He's, he's, he just seems, he's got these uh, little drawings all over him from kids, and he's been so badly treated. It looks like he's a, he's, he's a hardened prisoner. And Chuckles the Clown is, of course, voiced by Bud Lucky, who uh, narrated Bounding. Yeah, Bud Lucky's fantastic. Yeah, oh. he also was instru- instrumental in designing Woody, too. Oh, Bud Lucky? Yeah. How did I not know that? He, he drew basically like these, get, like when they were still kind of working on trying to figure out, okay, well, let's make him kind of like a, it's like kind of a cowboy looking guy. Then uh, there were just lots of uh, drawings going around, but Bud Lucky created the one that was like, that's it, that's Woody. <laughs> I did not know that. And so, yeah, in the epilogue, you get uh, the the payoff for Sunny side and you, you get to see what it's like under new management and uh, all of those characters you, you passed off as, as being evil and corrupt were actually just waiting for a decent leader and uh, Ken and Barbie seem to be uh, a just king and queen <laughs> and we get to see the uh, toys settling into their new home with, Bo- with Bonnie indeed and being quite happy there yes as well as a lovely little dance number Yes. To a, to a cover, to a Spanish cover of You've Got a Friend in Me. Which I'm going to play just now. And uh, you get to see a monkey in sunglasses. And uh, I personally think that they let that monkey off way too soon. They're like, oh yeah, no, he's just a fun monkey. That thing was pure evil. That, that wasn't thing is... a misjudged monkey. That monkey would kill you soon as look at you. There's a reason they put sunglasses on that thing, I yeah. think, because there's no way they could make it look redeemed in any way with those even eyes even if it's so. smiling with those eyes that's <laughs> probably why he wore them it's just like monkey we need a new image change for you the sunny side monkey and uh, yeah cover those psycho peepers up <laughs> and of course Rex finally gets uh, a soulmate someone to, who's as much of a geek as him uh, as, as a, a something of a computer game geek you may have heard of me uh, I, I, that was very close to my heart <laughs> Right, so that is the end of the Toy Story podcasts, and it's a bittersweet ending for us as well. Uh, but we will definitely be back with more Pixar casts at some point throughout the year. 
I look forward to that. Me too. And uh, hopefully some some more in-depth Disney discussions at some point, because it's a fascinating story covering the best part of a century worth of work. I look forward to that too. Oh, yes. Okay, so that's all from us. And uh, this is the Gypsy Kings with You've Got a Friend in Me. <laughs> Un buen amigo en mí, hay un amigo en mí, un buen amigo. 